The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 27th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The reviews are in, and if you like cold, hard truths stated in the least cold or hard way, well, here's New York Times senior politics editor Carolyn Ryan on the podcast The Run-Up. We surveyed the kind of commentariat, and it seems like Hillary Clinton came out ahead, uh, that people felt like she narrowly edged him out, that he initially seemed to be kind of uh, on equal footing with her, which was a, an accomplishment in and of itself, but that she ultimately both on points and style. Yeah, I'd have gone with wipe the floor with or turned him into orange aspic or allowed Mr. Trump to carefully fold himself into a giant origami pterodactyl, which she wrote off on in a hell of laughter and shimmying. Actually, those are all pretty active verbs, and that's not what actually happened during the debate. What happened was Mrs. Clinton stood vigil as Mr. Trump rambled his way toward oblivion. For more on how and what the surrogate said, Team Gist went to Hofstra last night. We posted our rapid response. It's in the feed. Check this out. But there was another element. Really, this was a meaningless element. Yeah, meaningless as compared to all the things that were said on stage that were so full of import, like uh, Sidney Blumenthal hiring McClatchy reporters to go to Kenya. And if my father were in the drapery business, he might have been ripped off by Donald Trump. Unlike those profundities on which a republic might falter and wane, here is my favorite Donald Trump surrogate effort. We join now Don King as he spots Hillary Clinton's surrogate, Mark Cuban. Hey, how are you? Good to see you, Don. <laughs> you working? I'll see you, boy. <laughs> Mark Cuban, y'all. There he is. We should note that Mark Cuban owns the Dallas Mavericks, not the Texas Rangers, but it's all good because right after that, Don King laid out how the military should be relying on traditional tactics like maneuver-style warfare in Syria and use the 1st Armored Division to cut off supply lines between Raqqa and Mosul. No, I'm kidding. He just said shtick from when he ripped off Muhammad Ali, Terry Norris, Larry Holmes, and Mike Tyson. I am not done. I will be taking all this talk of boxing in politics and transform it just a little bit into a spiel about football and politics. But I will make it accessible to all. And by emphasizing proper tackling techniques, I will eliminate the possibility of head trauma. But now onto the sweet science of getting out the vote for all the talk of debates and polls. It don't matter if they don't vote. And the mechanism by which they're, meaning the campaigns, are aiming to get voters to the polls could be a radical reinvention of everything we thought we knew about getting out the vote. Or if I'm being honest with you, the whole reinvention idea is more or less based on the Trump campaign's notions that they've invented a new and better way, which basically comes down to putting in less effort. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. 
because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. No matter what the polls say, no matter what the ad spending indicates, or whether or not the party decides, there's always one factor in elections that is mysterious and opaque and said to be very, very influential. Get out the vote, sometimes just known by the initials as GOTV. One of those weird initials where the T for the plays a role. But I've always thought that get out the vote was either overhyped or tremendously underhyped, or maybe in between. Like I said, it's mysterious. And it is dealt with as one small part of overall electoral victory. But really, when you get right down to it, isn't that an election, getting out the vote? Isn't this like treating a football game as, but the weird thing that you have to do is score points. Anyway, I am joined by a seer on these matters. She is a correspondent and political director of the PBS NewsHour, Lisa Desjardins. Hello, Lisa. Mike, great to talk to you, and thank you for correctly pronouncing my name. I tried to just give it a little French flair. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Let's talk about Get Out the Vote. (laughs) As a political reporter, what in general is your understanding of the importance, the sometimes very much hyped importance of Get Out the Vote? All right. The first caveat is that a lot of the rules don't apply to this election, as we've seen. Exactly. It's a little bit a little bit off the grid. Greg Brady can throw away the playbook that Marsha stole, and anyone who gets that reference, I really appreciate. But generally, the ground game is absolutely critical. In modern elections, you have to get your voters to the poll, because what's happening is as spending has increased, as fundraising has increased, everyone has completely blitzed the airwaves with ads, a lot of times negative ads, those are designed to keep people at home. So you are trying to keep the other guys, voters at home with your negative ads. You have to work separately to get your voters out. And that's why phone calls, identifying your voters, and in some cases, going to their home and physically putting them on a bus and taking them to the polls matters. It was the way that President Obama completely blew away Mitt Romney's expectations. The Romney campaign thought that was going to be a very much closer election, but it was the ground game and to some extent the digital game, which I'm including in that as Mm -hmm. well, the online and digital outreach. That campaign just blew away Romney's and, and they've admitted it. We really saw a difference in that election. Right. So in 2012, I remember the Obama people were saying, we've got a really good get out the vote effort. And the Romney people scoffed at that saying, "Eh, we do too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turns out the Obama people were better. This time around, the Clinton people are saying we're building on what Obama had. And the Trump people, or maybe it's person, it's a threadbare campaign over there, is saying what? 
They are saying we have a different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually for us reporters, that's a code for they don't have a plan. (laughs) They've got a problem. But in this case, the Trump campaign is making an argument that is worth at least paying some attention to. They are saying rather than have hundreds of campaign offices, which the Clinton campaign does have, and the Trump campaign, along with the Republican Party, does have some campaign offices, but far fewer than Clinton. The Trump campaign says instead of doing that, we are trying to go to shopping malls. We are trying to get out into communities and register voters. We are trying to find our voters that aren't registered and get them signed up to vote. Now, one question mark about that, I got to say, Mike, is that they're doing this pretty late in the game. And some states are getting ready to vote in the next couple of weeks. Early voting starts. Now, they are making some inroads. They are registering more voters in some key states like Florida than we've seen before for Republicans. They are definitely gaining some ground. However, how much ground are they losing by not having these physical campaign presences in all these different communities? It's hard to say. Right before Labor Day, I was able to get numbers. and These numbers are actually hard to get because these campaigns don't like to put this out. Somehow, I fooled them into giving me these numbers, uh, and I actually had to go state by state. The Clinton campaign at that point had more than three times as many campaign offices as the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign has since said they're opening another 100 in these kind of 15 key states. But even with those offices, they're still behind the Clinton numbers. So use your football analogy. Think of it in a way as if the two sides have the same number of fans in both of their bleachers. That's even. But Clinton showed up on the field with 11 players. Trump started the first quarter with maybe six or seven. (laughs) And he's going to add a few players. You know, that's what traditional ground game, that's what it looks like. Now, does that matter? Are, are, are the rules of the game changed altogether? Maybe it doesn't matter how many players you have. That's what the Trump campaign is saying. Are there people, uninvested people, maybe Republicans who aren't necessarily backing Trump, just people you trust who say mm-hmm. to you that is a plausible argument, the Trump's argument? I think they want to see the results, to be honest. I think those who believe in it the most admit that it's a, that they're testing something new here. But they are they testing something it. new because they had this great idea or they're forced into it by a lack of organization? It's not like yeah. anyone, given their druthers, wouldn't right. would have chosen this way. It was thrust upon them. What the Trump campaign is counting on, in a way, is for the emotion of the primaries to continue through the general. They are counting on voters individually to respond to him the way they were in the primaries. Clinton is, is, is hoping for that, obviously, but she's counting on more traditional ground game. She's not letting sort of the spur of the moment emotional context do it all. She's saying, no, I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to build some brick and mortar, and I, I'm going to have a foundation there. The danger for Donald Trump is if he has a wobble or if he has a very serious problem close to the election, he doesn't have the infrastructure, the campaign infrastructure the groundwork to fall back on in the way that Hillary Clinton does. Right. But I I would also think that some of this, fine, we're doing it differently. We're doing it smaller. Argue what you want. There's a certain percentage of people who are old and infirm and don't have cars. And the campaign who have buses and vans to get those people to the polls has to have an advantage over the campaign that doesn't. What would the argument be for our old and firm people are really passionate, but if they don't have cars, they don't have cars. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a legitimate point. I think, and this is in a way, maybe why Trump, the Trump campaign, which we know 
started with fewer resources, started with smaller staff. They've been trying to do things like register more voters who they think can get out to the polls on their own. Uh, and I think they're sorting out this issue right now. How do we get these older voters, which the Trump campaign has many of, to the polls? And and I, to be honest, I, I think that's the issue is that their their timing is behind what a traditional campaign would be. Um, on the other hand, though, Mike, let's look at the numbers. Trump's doing A-OK. And in fact, he's leading in some national polls and he's leading in some key swing states right now. You know, not that you know, polls, I'm not, I don't love polls all that much. But point is that even though he's behind in the ground game, clearly his idea that voters are individually responding to him, that's working in the polls for him right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's a question of whether it really works on voting day or not. Right. But a poll is someone calls you, you're at home, you answer the phone and you announce your intention. A vote (laughs) is that plus actually getting to like elections are won on votes, even if the intention of the people is being perfectly captured in these polls. uh, There's that little bit of a difference. And I don't know that the Trump campaign's arguments, at least to my mind, uh, jump over the chasm that is uh, we're talking about the difference between intention and pulling a lever. Yeah, in a way, they're flying without a net, but they also have this advantage of a year where voters clearly have a problem with most politicians, clearly don't like Washington. They're resting on that kind of momentum. Right. And then and all the free media that Donald Trump continues to get. He, his, you know, his ad spending has really been way below Hillary Clinton's as well. It's sort of like part two of the ground game is the ad spending. He's not spending the money yet. He's waiting till the very end, my sources tell me, to spend to really blitz, blitz the airwaves. The rule of thumb among the political cognoscenti, get out the vote, accounts for what percentage of the final outcome? Okay, this, this is much debated. This is much debated. I don't, I don't like being put down on this, but mm-hmm. somewhere, if you look at studies, it, it's somewhere probably in, in the single digits. You know, I've seen between three and eight percentage points, depending on the candidate and the race. But here's the thing is, look at the margin right now. And that, that's definitely the margin in a lot of these states like Florida that will determine the election. So even a one, one percentage point in Florida has determined elections. That's potentially huge. It's potentially huge. But that's a pretty wide range, right? Three to eight, which is it? You know, that's that's the difference of millions of voters. Yeah, but let's so, also you know, do this. Even let's take three. That was yeah. determined in an election or a series of elections where both campaigns were essentially trying to run what was thought of as the best, most competent ground game. Like we've never yeah. had a study where one was doing the let's get out the vote thing that's and the true. other one was relying on, you know, a new idea. Let's be charitable and say that. Yeah, that's true. And think about just for some really serious nerddom, think about 2012, Florida, let me see, the states that had margins with of three points or less for Barack Obama were Florida and then Ohio, North Carolina was for Romney by two. So those, I mean, those, those three states could determine the election and they've all been within three points in the last election. Mm-hmm. I would also say, have you done reporting on this, that Ted Cruz in Iowa was great mm-hmm. at targeting and get out the vote? Yeah. So it's not true that like Tea Party populism, Ted Cruz is very much of that ilk. So it's not true that Tea Party populism is the opposite of get out the vote. You know, his campaign showed, let's be scientific about it. And they were just much more likely to get a potential Cruz voter to vote or go to a caucus, which is a bigger ask than a potential Trump yeah. voter to do the same. Yeah, and that's, and Trump was late to that delegate math game as well. You know, he was able to pull it together in the end, but he had problems across the map 
in figuring out how to get delegates, which is kind of a, like you said, a mini version of get out the vote. In Virginia, there was a huge fight. In Colorado, places where Trump was doing well with the general primary vote, he was losing the delegate fight because he, it was, again, trying, you got to get out the people who count. And in the delegate fight, that wasn't necessarily the voters that Trump thought it was. But in, in the end, you know, they figured that out and, and got the delegates they need. But that was a real question mark for a while. And I think that speaks to Trump's approach, right? Mm-hmm. He's not, he doesn't think about the granular. He, he's not a longtime politician. He's not thinking about that. But he has to. And now his campaign is. The question is whether they're too late and too slow on it. Or it, does that matter this much? All right. Well, Lisa, thank you for erecting this house of cards. And I'm sorry if Tiger <laughs> knocked it over. I match your Brady with my Brady. Knock over more house of cards. I like it. Lisa Desjardins is a correspondent and political director for the NewsHour on PBS. Thanks. My pleasure. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now, the spiel. Donald Trump complained the microphone was defective last night. Yes, insofar as it was a conduit between the thoughts in Donald Trump's head, which manifested in plosives, fricatives, and aspirations that comprise his particular form of speech. These sounds were eventually amplified by that microphone so that they could be perceived by our ears and undergo syntactic processing in our inferior frontal gyruses, perhaps gyra. Anyway, my point is the microphone certainly bears some blame in allowing this whole process to go down. It allowed Donald Trump to make claims like this. Sean Hannity said very strongly to me and other people, he's willing to say, but nobody wants to call him. Fact check alert. Fact check alert. Let's say hi to Dr. Sam in Montana. Dr. Sam, how are Uh, you? Jim in San Francisco. Jim, hi. How are you? Glad you called, sir. Good, Sean. How are you doing, my friend? Vinny. Vinny is in Comac, New York, also out in Long Island. What's up, Vinny? How you doing? Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm very, uh, you're a great American. And uh... Yes, they do call him. I googled Sean Hannity radio show, and the first response is, call 1-800-941-7326, 3-6pm. Most of the things that Trump said did not help Trump, and they didn't help him because He is not good at explaining things, especially to audiences that don't already understand what he's talking about. Like this part. The AFL-CIO the other day, behind the blue screen, I don't know who you were talking to, Secretary Clinton, but you were totally out of control. I said, there's a person with a temperament that's got a problem. It's impossible to know what he's talking about. The fact checkers didn't even check this one. They just said, we don't know what he's talking about. I think I may have figured it out. It was this address that Hillary Clinton gave via video to an AFL-CIO audience. Perhaps you heard that there was a central claim in here that got a lot of play, but the right mocked her for talking too loud in this video. I will fight back against so-called right to work. Right to work is wrong for workers and wrong for America. Now, having said all this, 
Why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might ask? Well, the choice for working families has never been clearer. I think that was it. I think that was this reference to a poll and the AFL-CIO. The blue screen was just something that I guess he was imagining. Who knows? And who knows applies to so much of what Trump did, what he said, or to be more precise, what he couldn't stop himself from saying. The interruptions that were meant to unnerve her began to draw titters and then full out laughs from the crowd of journalists in the media room I was in. And they're supposed to know there's no rooting in the press box. And Trump talked about things like birther allegations in such mind-numbing, confusing detail. Sidney Blumenthal works for the campaign and close, very close friend of Secretary Clinton and uh, her campaign manager, Patty Doyle, went to, during the campaign, her campaign against President Obama, fought very hard and you can go look it up and you can check it out and if you look at CNN this past week, Patty Solis Doyle was on Wolf Blitzer saying that this happened uh, Blumenthal sent Matlachi, highly respected reporter at Matlachi, to Kenya to find out about it. But if you think about it, what we heard there with the blue screen reference and the Sidney Blumenthal thing, those are techniques that actually work in other settings. So if Trump were giving a speech at a rally and mentioned something about polls and Hillary not having temperament in a blue screen, the whole crowd would cheer. Hey, you insulted Hillary. Good enough for them. He'd come away thinking, they get me. And if he tried the whole Sidney Blumenthal garrulous garbage garble, that shakes up interviewers, right? Interviewers wanted him to be on point. Maybe especially if he's joining the show by phone, he goes off on a weird tangent. You can't tether him. And he feels like he won the exchange because no blows were landed. But in a debate, how can the viewer think anything but, what are you talking about? Why are you wasting your time on this? See, Trump always talks about how unpredictable he is, how he has the element of surprise. And I noticed that NFL teams do this also and apply judiciously. A well-executed flea flicker or bit of unpredictability can help a team. But I find it's usually a desperate tactic. Actually, to be precise, talking about your unpredictability is more often the claim of a tactic And that claim is driven by not having better options. So a team's first string quarterback goes down and then their second string quarterback goes down and then you're stuck with the third string. So you can't say, oh no, we're down to our tertiary option. You talk about how now the other side won't know how to game plan for all the unpredictableness that's coming. The New England Patriots pulled off a little bit of unpredictableness with their third string quarterback last week. But they have other excellent aspects to their football team, other positions, a great defense that they can rely on. And Trump has nothing like this ballast on his rudderless ship. And there was another football analogy I thought of. In the NFL, there's a combine. The combine is an extended tryout to see the physical skills of all the college players. You test their speed and their jumping ability and their strength. And the critics will say, and not without reason, that a combine doesn't show who's going to be a successful player, that you could look good in the combine, but that's different from looking good on the field. Yeah, that's all true. In the same way that a debate is a really imperfect way to judge which candidate is going to make better choices in the Oval Office. But there is one thing a combine can do. And I never gave the institution of debates this credit. The combine 
or the debate can expose someone who has zero business being on the field, someone who lacks even the minimal skills required for the job. Maybe debates aren't the problem, because since 1960, Nixon and Kennedy, all the participants in the debate at least met the minimum qualifications for the job, and that was apparent. Maybe a debate can't show who will excel at an actual job, like the combine can't tell you who's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, but it can weed out the obvious glaring busts. The ones who, if they play the game, just might get themselves killed, or in the case of presidents, them and us. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is into outrageous forms of journalism. Donald Trump has called her gonzo. Just producer Chris Berube wears the glasses, is very organized. Donald Trump has called him Scooter. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Donald Trump has cruelly and repeatedly dubbed him Bunsen Honeydew. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is derided, and this has gone on too long, as the Menomina guy by Donald Trump. Has he no shame? The gist, lightly associated with Pepe, the king prawn, until it became a symbol of the alt-right. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>